For listeners who've just joined us, we've done our usual thing of not actually introducing our guest, which which is the awesome, the incredibly inimitable Jack Beaumont, who has just admitted off air that he essentially spent his summer shamelessly pot hunting at a very, very high level. Thank you for coming back on, Jack. It's lovely to see you again. Thanks for having me. It's great. It's great to be back. It's nice to see you both. I get to see you both. No one else will get to see you. But... <laughs> I was actually talking to someone at work about this today and they said, no, you, you've got to put this up on YouTube. You're just not going to get anywhere without. Well, I think it could, you know, um, or even have you ever watched the Ricky Gervais show? They were podcasts, but then they got an illustrator to make them into cartoons. And so it's, it's Ricky Gervais, Stevie Merchant, and then Carl Pilkington, you know, the guy that was on Idiot Abroad. And oh my goodness, it's like, it's funny listening to it, but seeing these cartoons around the table talking is just hilarious. I, I think I quite like to be represented as a cartoon. I think a cartoon could be the way to go. Jack, you have, I mean, not just the coastal rowing, but you've had a fairly eventful and arguably from the perspective of British rowing, a fairly historic summer. There was this event called the Olympics. Did that actually happen? I heard that was going to be canceled. Yeah, and and you, you seem to do rather well at it. Yeah, I, I don't think many people have noticed it for two reasons. One, it happened in the middle of the night, and unfortunately, was we were, we all the press was about how badly we all did. So, <laughs> um, so that's a shame. But um, no, it was fantastic. The event was great. I think the I think the Japanese organisers just did an amazing job to hold such a large scale event in in the climate where everybody thought that it wouldn't be able to happen. And I was there in Tokyo in the Olympic Village, almost a bit of me waiting for it to kick off and like half the athletes to get coronavirus and it to just be awful. But they did it so well and I never once felt unsafe or or that it was inappropriate. I, the other thing is that, you know, the press the, the news we were all seeing before was that 81% of Japanese people don't want it to happen. And, and, you know, when you're reading that and you know you're going to this event, it felt a bit irresponsible. Um, but, you know, we saw the plans that were in place for it. And then we saw the Japanese public and we weren't allowed to see them properly. They, we saw them through the window of our buses, really, or the ones who were volunteering to help at the events. They, you didn't, you, you, it was a very strict bubble, but everybody we saw was just waving at our buses, looking really excited, holding signs and flags up and actually really still getting to the spirit of it. So I think as an event and organising a bit, it was really well done. Uh, as a competitor, oh, we had three races and each one was its own story. <laughs> one was, well, it was very tough, very hard racing, but uh, just the most overwhelming happy feeling to, to win a silver medal like you said the three races three stories we'd love to hear them it did seem as though the conditions were genuinely a bit special for an olympic regatta yes but but then actually when i think of it i've been to two olympic regattas and both of them have had the similar sort of wind affecting it so in, in rio in our heat um you, you genuinely couldn't see the boy line because it was so rough <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> And then our final was delayed a day because of bad weather. And there was like pairs falling in and all this kind of stuff. And then Tokyo, again, we arrived and it's just windy, rough. There wasn't a single day when we went out and it was flat, like nowhere, nowhere close. But it was, so now that's just what I think that's what Olympic rowing is. Maybe, it, maybe, maybe the transition from Olympic rowing and if they make it coastal 
it won't be that big a change. <laughs> um, but so yes, it was windy, but it, I don't think it was as bad as it might've looked on TV. Like going out rowing, it wasn't like, it, it was nothing you haven't experienced in training hundreds of times. Okay. The, only, the only thing that was different and it's quite nice is that this water that was splashing you was warm. You weren't getting thermal shock every time that you got hit. Um, <laughs> Although the boat was, um, because it was so warm and the, the weather was warm, each session your boat would just be covered in like a crust of salt because it was salt water as well. Of course, because it was the seaway. Mm. We had a chat with Matt Langridge a little while ago, and he talked about uh, when they were getting the eight ready for Rio, that they would deliberately go out in, in rough conditions because they, they knew that Rio was probably going to be bouncy. After talking to Eric Murray, he said it probably affected the smaller boats a little bit more than bigger boats like the eight. And Loon and I always thought that at Cavisham, you basically get your water shipped in daily from Lucerne and you all have your own personal butler to press it so it's mirror smooth for the for the, the optimum rowing experience. But apparently that's not the case. Did you do anything similar to Matt or did you just kind of go, it's, it's all part of rowing, you know, having come up through clubs and probably experienced everything, every weather condition the British Isles can throw at you? Yeah, well, I think I think both parts of that are interesting. Definitely coming up through clubs made a huge difference. We've we've learned to row in you know all sorts of combinations and all sorts of types of boat and brands of boat and on different rivers and lakes and going around bends and going through a bridge when it's the river's maybe a bit in flood and you get that funny eddy afterwards, all this kind of stuff. We, we're used to that. And all four of us did come up from clubs and doing that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I wouldn't say we completely searched for bad water, but we definitely didn't shy away from it. So if it was a rough day, we, we did not miss sessions for that. There, I, I've got a video I can probably try and find at some point of us training in the quad in February when it was snowing and windy at the same time. And it was like proper sideways sort of blizzard into us. And we were out there in the quad with our pogies on and hats and snoods and stuff. And, and the water looks so rough. And I think we, we again, just like what my language said, we, did know that Tokyo was likely to be rough. The prevailing wind and what we expected was a slight cross tailwind from the left-hand side, which is what did finally happen on our finals day. It didn't happen for a single day until our finals day, but it did happen then. So actually when, when we arrived at the course for our final, it was exactly what we had expected Tokyo to be. So I was a bit shocked when people were, other countries mostly were, were saying, or, or seem to be struggling with conditions so much because it was, we've had years of knowing that that's what it will be. Mm. Um, so we were, yeah, we were prepared for that. And, and yeah, I think Havisham is often windy. So, <laughs> and it often has um, exactly those same conditions that we, that we ended up getting, which was quite good because it meant it was, and every time we trained and we had a cross tailwind from the left, we'd always say in the boat, right, this is Tokyo conditions and kind of have a real focus on that we're just watching at home and we're kind of picking up on the aerial shots and going, actually, that looks quite bouncy. And we were noticing that a lot of crews were, um, were crabbing or, or, or were, you know, having difficulty steering and, and that sort of thing. But your, your mindset and attitude going in was, was very much, this is where we're racing. This is what we've come to do. These are the conditions that we expect. We'll play the hand as it's being dealt us. Yeah, exactly that. And actually I'd say we, we saw it as an, advan- an advantage that it was that weather. We, mm. we were like, this is exactly what we want. 
we weren't the biggest crew or strongest crew, definitely not physically, but, um, and, and throughout the season, we'd raced a lot of headwind races. So we'd raced, um, in Varese at the European championships, the heat and the, uh, the heat was definitely a headwind. The rest of the other two days were fairly neutral in Lucerne. Every race was a headwind. Mm. Um, in Tokyo, the, the rapid charge was a strong headwind and it was like, okay, these, we can cope with this, but this isn't what we thrive in. And then when it turned around to be a tailwind, we were just like, this is just brilliant. Especially when the, um, the, this typhoon came in and our race got delayed by a day. It was like, okay, this is going to be a strong tailwind. <laughs> Fantastic. And I guess we just, um, we would seek to see every thing that could be a curveball as a, as a benefit and as an opportunity. And that, that helped us. Yeah, basically because it was such an eventful race. I think I watched the final three or four times all the way through. I mean, literally sort of like going backwards and forwards with the, the remote control thing. Oh, that's when the Italians went. And you guys just seem, you really did seem as though you just took the race by the scruff of the neck. I mean, was there, was there any kind of on the day plans like guys, we know how to deal with this let's let's go for it off the start yeah i I wouldn't say we did anything completely crazy on the day it it looks like if you watch the race it looks like we did and i think um no one expects us to have a quick start which is funny because in in training we were always could do a really quick start but every time we went to race we just (laughs) we just couldn't do it i think it i think that um you know we had maybe holes in our blades or something i don't know there's something (laughs) something went wrong on (laughs) no on race day it just didn't work normally and we knew it was going to be this fast race. We knew it'd be bouncy and we knew it'd be a short race probably. So we thought, right, well, and, and also it's Olympic final. It's the one race we've trained to do. There's no shame in coming last. If we tried our hardest, let's just put it all out there. And we agreed as a crew, we were just going to, we in the rapid charge, we'd had to go off quite hard and we agreed we would do that, but even more. <laughs> and, and I don't think we did really front loaded the race. And if you look at the splits of it, it was quite a normal um, race profile, but we did manage to just get a bit of an edge on everybody in the first 500 meters, which I think then, I think it then got into their heads and affected how they sculled in the conditions. And it, it meant, you know, if you're sitting a bit up on somebody and it's rough, it's easier to just be skillful because you don't, you, you don't have to try and get ahead. But if you're a bit behind and it's rough, you might be a bit ragged in your technique. And, you know, and I, I feel for those guys in the Italian quad that caught that big boat stopper. But at the same time, that's a huge part of our sport. It's getting from A to B, regardless of what the weather's doing. And, and unfortunately for them, they, they made a mistake. Eric Murray said something similar about Rio, that once, once him and, ha- and Hamish got clear, he said, what were your calls at, the, at that point? And he said, don't fuck this up, roll the conditions, we've got a lead, and all of the pressure was on everybody else. You've, you've said just off the start there, Jack, that there's almost a story in every race. So so maybe you've got to Tokyo against all the odds the Olympics is, is happening. There's I'm getting the sense from you that a lot of the things about, oh, we don't want the Olympics here, it seems like a bit of a media confection because it sounds like you got a very positive reaction when you were there. Once you're there, take us through the story of each race because the first round was nail biting and then... Yeah, so the first round, we were, I think we were very confident. We'd had, fan, after Lucerne, where we'd got a bronze medal, which was great. 
we'd had a really two really good training camps in Varese and in Silvestre doing the high altitude camp. We were getting some pretty quick times. And then we came home for one week before flying to Tokyo and trained at Havisham. And we did two really fast 2Ks, like two of the quickest times I've ever done without without being in a race situation. So it's like, well, we are flying here. Like, this is great. So we turned up for our heat and we had Lithuania in the race and they had had a really unfortunate situation where the Russian team withdrew after having doping positives. Lithuania had to come in very late. They had like three days to get there and get ready. So we thought we're pretty happy we'll beat them. We've got the Netherlands who have been unbeaten in the last couple, well, not unbeaten, but very good in the last couple of years. There's Australia who we've not raced because of coronavirus. There's China, again, we've beaten them, but they're always pretty good. And um, I can't remember who else there was, maybe one up. No, no, there was just five crews. And we were pretty confident that that we will, because we've been going well, we will make the top two. And we will, if we just do a good race, we'll make the top two. And we got completely dropped on off the start. And it's really, really hard to try and get back into that top two and, and just missed out. And that meant the pressure's on. So we were disappointed. It was a good race. And I think had we done it as a time trial at home, we'd have said, okay, yeah, that was pretty good. But pretty good is not good enough when it's when there are tight margins. Um, so we we then kind of took to the drawing board and thought, right, we what we need to do is not be in a position where we're spending 1,900 meters rowing through crews or trying to catch them up. We need to put ourselves at the front. So for the repressage, that, that had to be our plan that one is there's two crews that will make the final of six and uh, and if you don't make that there's your olympic medal dream over and i remember i remember the situation in in um rio we went through the repercharge in rio as well and i remember how nervous i was but this time was a million times worse honestly i was so nervous i, I don't know how much i showed it or whether my crewmates realized it but before the race, I actually was like, there were bits of me that just wanted to quit rowing there and then. You know, if there's anything that could get me away from that course and away from needing to do this race, I wanted it to happen or anything that, you know, divine intervention that could thunderstorm or whatever that could happen or the lake just evaporate, something to go wrong. <laughs> um, but then we got water and then I felt confident again. And, and we did lead that race from first stroke to the last stroke. And it was very, very tough. Yeah, and it was tight. It was, you know, had we gone a second slower, we'd have been in the B final. Really, really great cruise. Um, but that, after that, we were like, okay, we've we've learned from our heat. We've improved from our heat. Now we've got something that the crews that beat us on, on Friday and the heat don't have. We've had a chance to improve. What was interesting after that was that the schedule was supposed to be, it was... Friday would be the heat, Sunday the repercharge, and then Tuesday the final. So we'd have one day off in between. So the crews that went directly through would have had three days off and then go to the final. We were pretty confident that we'd learned our lesson from the heat and we were fit enough to recover from the repercharge until the final. But then something came into our favour. This typhoon came over to Tokyo and delayed our final by one day which gave us an extra day to recover from that exertion of the repercharge. So really in, in our heads, we were thinking, right, so we've had our chance to learn our lesson. 
we thought we were good enough to recover anyway, but now we definitely have time to recover. We're in an outside lane for the final. The last two Olympic quad finals had been won from an outside lane. So in London, okay, in London, the lanes were redrawn, but they won from yeah. an outside lane, the Germans. And then the Germans won again from an outside lane in, in Rio after coming through the recharge. So me and Angus, who had experienced that in Rio, we were saying to the other guys, right, like the Germans did this, they won gold from the outside lane after winning the recharge. What's holding us back? And I don't know whether it's stupid cockiness, arrogance, or a large just self-confidence from the training and performances we knew we could do. But in our heads, we attacked that race like there was no one we couldn't beat. Now, we'd never come close to beating the Netherlands before, but when's a better time to try and do it than, than the Olympic final, right? Were you aware of how much drama there was in that race? No, I was unaware of most of it. The only bit I was aware of was the Italians catching that crowd because it was right next to us. It was must have been about 600 metres into the race. We'd just gone through that bridge in the, mm-hmm. at the lake. And, um, yeah, it was a big crowd. It, it like, was massive. It just went backwards. Yeah, well, I've seen the video of it now, and it looks quite funny that there's both our bowels together, and then it looks like someone's yanked theirs back. Yeah, there, it was it was loud. You could hear the crab, and then you could hear them shouting after it, and and then I could hear Harry shouting us to go <laughs> because you know let's make the most of this. And um, but other than that, I wasn't aware. I was aware that that it was rough, and that I was just having to get my blades out. I was aware that we were taking more strokes per minute than we normally would. We were definitely racing higher than we normally would throughout the whole race. I don't think we went below 40 strokes per minute in the first 500 metres. I think we averaged probably about 38 and a half through the middle bit and then back up above 40 for the last 500 metres, which is normally we'd rate somewhere around 35, 36 in the middle. So that was, I remember that. But, but to be honest, I had no idea about all the other bits and bobs going on until the last maybe 200 metres when I started to notice other crews coming back at us. And that, <laughs> that, was, that was a bit scary. I remember watching it, it was pretty scary. But it just seemed almost, it did seem as though there, there was crew after crew coming back at you and the only one that actually had the ability to row fast enough through the water at the end of it were the Dutch. What I said at the end of this, this was a waterman's victory. This, this, was, this was a triumph of skillful rowing. It, yeah, and mm-hmm. you know what? That's, that's great. And that's, um, that's something that I've I'd kind of imagined a year before the Olympics happened. I can't, because we were always aware of this, this wind. When they first opened the course, there was this video that came out from World Rowing about... Um, Oh, look at the Sea Forest Waterway. And I had, it just looked awful. Everyone was, <laughs> re, people reposting it thinking, are you sure the Olympic Games is happening here? And it was like, we were very aware that it could just be exactly like that. So in my head, I was always thinking it could play into our hands that bigger, stronger guys, maybe, maybe who don't have the same skill level or, or, or are not so used to being in under pressure in that sort of condition might struggle and you might get some surprises as well with the results. And so 
yeah, it's, I like that you said it's Wasman's victory, and I hope that um, it encourages people across our country to to go out on the, the rough days and improve their their rough water rowing because it well you don't pick what day the race happens and and I'm sure many of the people in in that race will wish it, but you can't get to the end and go, can we do it again? It's not yeah. <laughs> not like that. It's it's there's that one that one time where it's going to happen and you have to get to the finish line quickly. But it's been something that I think we talked about it last time you were on, and we've definitely talked about it with with Andy Hodge and a couple of other people, that there are times in Olympics where it's almost like like a floating erg competition because it's all about being big and strong and powerful. And the a lot of a lot of the things that we like about rowing, you know, in this the people in this conversation, the watermanship and the fact that different rivers or different courses or different boats are different days. I'm currently rowing on the Tyne, where there's an 18 to 20 foot tidal run every, you know, twice a day. Learning to read the conditions and row the conditions is just as important as having a a, a good 2K score on an erg. So it it really did seem like it was like yes, that's. That's what we've been talking about for the last year, sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, exactly that. And I think I think that's more exciting, isn't it? Otherwise, why not just have indoor rowing for the for yeah. the event? Don't it's, tell it's, me. It, <laughs> it shows um, the rowing is is not just a sport for being strong, right? It, of course, you have to. There's a level of strength you need. You you need to have. Otherwise, you you wouldn't move the boat enough. But um, yeah, you have to also stop the boat from slowing down. And, yeah. and I think that's the most important thing about rowing that people kind of forget. It's like, yeah, you can put as much power through the pin and, and row a really long drive with really high force. But what are you doing that keeps the boat from slowing down and from decelerating on the recovery and, and as you put your blades in and as you take them out? I think that's really crucial. And um I think that sometimes, you know, people are so focused on being strong and strong and strong, and rightly so, because you need to be as fit and strong as you can be, but you also need to make sure you're making your boat travel be it. One thing our coach always said to us was that there's five of us, it's the four of us in the boat and the boat working together. And that was quite important, I think. Just to pick, to pick up on a couple of things that you said in, in describing the lead up to the race, I think... Um, it's definitely in Steve Redgrave's book. I don't think it's in Matt, in Matt Pinson's book. Um, he's more famous for throwing up on the way to the start line during the Olympics. But when you talked about, please, an act of God, the rowing lake dry up, um, someone just get me out of this. I will do it later, if, you know, sort of thing. Redgrave had very similar emotions on every single one of his Olympic finals. I will do it, but just not today. Can we can we put it off? You know, if, if there was an exit, I would have walked through it sort of thing. And a very similar thing to yourself is actually once you get hands on and you get in, in the boat, that kind of goes. It's like now I sort of know what I'm doing. Um, so you're certainly in good company there. But what we talked to Hodge about uh, Beijing and about the London Olympics, and he was describing his his race and kind of the feeling of the boat. It sounds like you were very aware that you had to be, you all had to be rowing neatly and cleanly. Yeah. Um... I don't know if it was conscious as such because I, I we rose so many kilometers every day and every week and throughout the different seasons throughout the year. Um, so we row in these conditions all the time. So we kind of learn what to do when it's what. Mm. And 
I wouldn't say that we we didn't say okay it's rough we need to make a good shape around the finish or any of these things but I guess we just in our heads just switched to rough water mode and uh, to me in rough water mode I don't think so much about pushing so hard because I think that that bit kind of happens anyway you're in a race you're in an Olympic final I don't think you're gonna not push hard um the focus for me then became am I moving my hands well around the around the finish am I kind of yeah am I kind of um not trying to be brutal with it I was brutal for the, the first 20 strokes I was very brutal uh, all the force I've got was in was in those first 20 strokes but then after that I was just thinking am I moving with the boat and um and, and I think that was what helped us instead of thinking so because I think it's easy easy when you think about trying to be strong that's when you can start making the mistakes because you try and maybe bite off a little bit more than you can chew each stroke and you know the spoon can only take a spoonful if you imagine you're taking i don't know sugar out of a out of a bowl you can't take more than what the spoon will hold if you try to it falls off and um i think that's exactly the same with our rowing spoons you've got the amount that it can take with the gearing that it's on and the length you're rowing and any more you'll start having some sort of mistake going on and um it might go deeper or it might catch at the fin- at the finish or catch a crab any of these things and i was quite conscious of not doing that so in a way i'd say it was probably it, it definitely hurt less than the recharge did right it, because the recharge was a headwind it was not that rough it was very much a physical effort um whereas this one that was a little bit more sort of um nous, i guess to just making sure we were moving the boat nicely and and not slowing it down rather than just <laughs> outworking the guys beside us. Yeah, so so not as much a conscious realisation, but also almost like an internal recognition because you, you've, I, as we, we said at the start, you've, you know, you've come up through the clubs, you've rowed in every condition on probably every bit of water in the UK, you know, rough and smooth. It's a little bit like driving a car, you know, the automatic skills, you, you're driving to the conditions, you're rowing to the conditions because you've done it so many times before. I'd like to say that I do that, but I probably just row exactly the same because I'm not, I'm not <laughs> no. as technical as that. It's just like, oh God, just pull harder. It's my answer for everything, I'm afraid. But as you headed towards the finish and, and you were still very much in a race, yeah. did you have that, I'm going to win an Olympic medal here thing? And then when you finally got to the line, you know, Matthew Pinson says it's indescribable. It's, you know, it's relief, it's elation. It's all, it's like a starburst of joy. It's all of these things. As you came up to the line, then as you crossed the line, as you can recall, Jack, um, what were you thinking and what were you feeling? Oh, it's in, that's interesting. It's, it's throughout the whole race, not even just the last bit, because we led for the first, I don't know, 1,450 metres. Yeah. It was like, okay, we're ahead, but this is where we thought we might be. Then it was like 600 meters through. We're still ahead. What's going on with everyone else? Maybe we've just nailed it. Maybe we have just absolutely nailed it. Halfway, we're ahead. It's like, are we gonna? Are we gonna win? <laughs> if so, it's like, wow, well, this is just amazing. Let's just keep this up. And then the Dutch, rightly so, because they they're an outstanding crew. They they moved through and and they got the world records. That's just all credit to Brilliant crew. Um, but then. Yeah, it was like we're gonna we're gonna get a medal here. This we're gonna get a medal here, and then the, about in the I don't know, must be in 150 meters ago. I took a little right, look to the right, and I saw a load of other crews. <laughs> like, oh no, we 
we have not raced for this long and there, and, and got it so right for so far for this race to to not get a medal now. And I don't really know what I did, but I just thought about pushing and pulling as hard as I can until I hear the beeps. And the beeps just came like beep, 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 beep. And I was like, ah. Oh. <laughs> I, I, yeah, and so I got no, I, I had, for the first couple of seconds, had no idea whether we were second or fourth. Um, there's that little nagging voice in the head that says, you've come forth here. And then I had Angus behind me just shout. And I looked up and saw the scoreboard and saw Netherlands and then GBR. And oh, I went, I went absolutely mental. I went, I, I'm, a little bit of me feels a tiny bit bad because the Italian boat had just caught a massive crowd and stuff. They were right next to us. But that, I shouldn't feel bad because they would have been standing up, taking their blades out, having above the head, all this stuff by now. So, but yeah, it, it, it was, we've never won an Olympic medal in a, in a men's club before. And it's something, some really hugely talented athletes have tried to do for a long time. I've been in, in the quads in the past, there's been people like Alan Campbell, Matt Wells, um, Tom Salisbury, Charles Cousins, Matt, um, Sam Townsend, like way bigger, stronger guys, really talented guys, and they've, they've not managed to get it. And we've benefited from the learning that the team's done through their experiences. And I, I have no doubt that it, had they been part of the team this year, they'd have been able to do it too. Um, but for us to cross the line and realise that we had achieved that, it's, it's been a huge thing for our for us gunning teams to try and do. I wouldn't say there was any relief because it's not like we expected it. I think it's relief for the people that go in as a favourite, but we, we weren't going in as a favourite. We, we knew what we thought we could do and we believed we could come second realistically. Um, but it was, I wouldn't say it was relief. It was just pure happiness and joy. It was real joy and, um, and pride. And was there a certain degree of smugness that you rode it clean and no one else on the final, on the podium? Well, there was later, but we didn't realise. We didn't realise. Uh, okay. We, because we were in lane one, or I think it was one, not six, the, the far side, um, we knew the Italians had caught a crab, but we had no idea about anything else that had gone on. Okay. Uh, but then when we watched it back, I was thinking, did those, did those guys not get the memo that it was meant to be really rough in Tokyo and train and <laughs> practice for this? Um, it was a bit like why it made me feel a bit bemused that other people had, I, I, I understood that it was windy. And after our medal ceremony, as we were rowing back, we saw the Norwegian double fall in. So it was kind yeah. of rough. It was definitely rough, but I was, I was surprised at how, how badly some people dealt with the, with the wind actually. Because okay. we train outdoors. Like, I don't know. Uh, like <laughs> they're not windy. Maybe it's only windy in England. I'm, I'm not sure, but. I, I have been to other, I have been to other parts of the world, and I, I I'm fairly sure that I felt a breeze on uh, on occasion. I think that's pretty poor for professional watermen and waterwomen to kind of not not get the memo about the Tokyo Sea Sea Lanes course. How did it feel to get the medal round your neck? Are people treating you differently? I mean, obviously we are. We're much more deferential than we usually are. Um, did, did you come home to a hero's welcome? Do you get free goods in the supermarket? I mean, what's how does it feel? Well, the firstly, the medal ceremony was was so strange but brilliant because the reason it was strange was that um, so it, normally in rowing races you just wear your all in one for a medal ceremony, but at the Olympics now they have this you have to wear these tracksuits 
every team has a tracksuit you've got to put it on so we very quickly had to change or not change put a tracksuit over our all in ones so it started to look like we'd wet ourselves because our all in ones were <laughs> um, the, reason, the reason it was strange was because this medal ceremony was performed in front of a totally empty grandstand um, and normally that would be and it was it was great it was all these really cool anthems and flags and amazing epic like medal ceremony theme tune and and, and it was a realization that we had really achieved this and we got we, well we presented each other with these massive massive olympic medals each one weighing i think it's 550 grams like they're seriously chunky bits of metal but it was quite strange to not then look up and try and pick out people that we know or look for our mum and dad or whoever in the, the grandstand and really just to see the only people in there were cameramen <laughs> that was that was a strange thing now since coming home well even arriving back in at the landing stage so when we finally got to get back and see our coach and see our support staff and teammates who were there we got to take a photo like put all of our medals on our coach's neck and get a photo which was nice and um and see all of our support like our physios and, and people like that who'd supported us and and some of our teammates so that eight was about to go and race its repercharge and we saw them briefly uh, and that was really cool then we flew home the next day so i was actually watching the men's eight and watching vicky thorny in her final from my sofa at home um because you um usually you, you can stay until the whole team goes home but because of covid once you've done your event you then have to yeah so, normally like normally we'd stay until the closing ceremony and then go home uh but no no this time uh the japanese authorities said you had to leave within 48 hours and then our race had been delayed so our flights were already booked and so we were we were shipped straight out but yeah that was great welcome we got home and you know, everyone was, it was, I think they were quite surprised because they'd just seen us on TV. And then a day later, we're, you know, in England and in Waitrose, whatever, and Tesco and <laughs> doing our thing, celebrating in Weatherspoons. Um, <laughs> and um, I wouldn't say people have been treating me hugely differently, but we do, we've been getting some cool invites to stuff. So, um, so we went to one of the England football games a few months, like about a month ago, which was really fun. Um, Racing at Henley was great. It was really great to come back and, and be able to do that because what we did miss in terms of having a crowd and having our families come to watch us race, we got to then have because we were racing in the UK. Yeah. Um, but life, I wouldn't, I, like, I wouldn't say life's changed hugely. Like I've had more um, requests to, to come and speak at dinners and, and stuff like that, which has been, well, really nice, actually really nice to meet so many different people who... And what surprises me and it's humbling, I suppose, is how many people stayed up to half past two in the morning to watch us. And it was a late one, Jack. Yeah. <laughs> and I completely understand it now because I stayed up to watch the Paralympic row and it was not easy. It was really not easy. Yeah. Uh... Yeah. So I wouldn't say life's changed a huge amount, but it has been like there are times when I just remember that we have achieved that. And, and, it's the, I guess, as long as I've been rowing, I've always had this dream of winning an Olympic medal. I've not always been necessarily dreaming of being an Olympic champion, but I, I would like to win a medal because that's, mm. I think that's hard enough, right? And, yeah, um, yeah. and for when I 
remember that or see so i have my medal it's in a box that they, came, they gave us a nice medal box and sometimes i just go and have a little look again and it's <laughs> so cool it's just amazing i'm so proud of it and um and very content very very content that's lovely to hear i, I i'm guessing there's a sense of i mean not that you probably needed it but there's almost a sense of validation on your on your journey that 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 i actually not that it was all worthwhile but that so you've achieved something that you always thought that you could and felt that you could, but now you've actually done it. You don't have to wonder anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And the kind of idea I've had in my head for the last couple of years of rowing is like, is that you have to enjoy it because the probability, if you were just to think of the stats of, or, or the, the what ifs that happen on a day to day and year by year basis, you have to, to win an Olympic medal. You have to firstly stay fit the whole time. Then you have to be performing well enough to get picked in a boat. Then you have to gel really well with your crewmates. Then your crewmates also have to stay fit and healthy up until finals day. And then you have to work well with your coach. And then you have to have it all go right on the day and hope that you're not racing people that are totally extraordinary and, you know, one of a kind that go and beat you. And everyone in the world or every other competitor who we're against is trying to do that same thing. So if you just think purely on like a probability basis, it's unlikely that you'll win a medal, but you're putting this huge effort and huge amount of time into it. There's a very high likelihood, I suppose, that you'll be disappointed in your result. So there has to be something more. You have to enjoy it and have to have had a good time. Otherwise mm. you could look back without any silverware and go, well, what did I do that for? So in my head before the Olympics, I had to be quite happy that, okay, I'm, it's not me really planning for failure or, or not wanting to win. Of course I want to win and I'm going to give it everything I can to win, but I need to be happy with whatever the outcome is and, and be happy that I had a great time with my crewmates doing it. And I think that's something we had quite, had quite good. We got on really well in our quad. We loved rowing together. Um, I'm sure we came across like that in our interviews and stuff because it was just so much fun. Like they're, they're all people I've known for a very long time. So I rode with, uh, I rode against Tom since we were like 11 years old when he was rowing at Burway and I was rowing at Maidenhead. We'd mm -hmm. race each other pretty much every week at local heads and regattas. Angus, again, we've, I've probably known him since I was 14. And then and Harry since I was about 16 after I used to row with his big brother. So um, we've kind of seen each other develop for a long time and made very close friendship. And yeah, I, I'd say even had we not performed how we wanted to, I'd have been able to look back and say, well, we had a great time. But now I can be very smug and go, well, we had a great time and got the medal. So it's much, much better yeah. that way. Because, because you made it about the journey rather than just focusing on the destination of, of a medal or, or a gold medal. And now you've ended up with, with a fulfilling journey and the destination as well, because you, you, you've ticked a box that you always wanted to tick. Did your dad say anything? Because I know that he's, he's, a, he's an Olympian too. And I believe it was Seoul in the eight. Am I, am I right? It was sold in the eight, yeah. Um, yeah, he's he's so proud. He was, uh, my stepmom sent me a photo. So I didn't get my phone for a couple of hours after the race because I had had the medal ceremony and then I got called for uh, doping control. So I had to do the anti-doping. Um, so I sat in there for probably two hours need, trying to make myself need a wee again. Yeah. Uh, I didn't, didn't have my phone yet. But then when I got it back, I had like a million messages from really everyone being so kind and all the crazy people that stayed up to watch, watch the race. And, um, but my stepmom had sent me a photo of my dad watching 
us and our medal ceremony. And I think he was crying. He'd probably tell me that he wasn't, but I think he was very, very proud. But I'm sure he was. Um, and yeah, it's because I, I, it's tough because I know that he would have he would have loved to have won an Olympic medal himself, and he was very close. He finished in fourth place, and mm. and that must have been really, really disappointing. But um, he also was a huge part of my development and my enjoyment in the sport, and, and even me finding the sport in the first place. So he, although he did not win a medal himself, I hope he feels. Um, a sense of pride in, in his own contribution into our medal because I wouldn't have done it. I, I wouldn't have even started rowing if it wasn't for him and I wouldn't have enjoyed it so much as a young kid because he was my first coach and mm. he, he made it so much fun and he was never, um, he was never a pushy parent. He was never telling me to do things or trying to make me do more than I wanted or, or you know, put any pressure on me. He would only make me do as much as I wanted to and also he would he was always very happy for me to not row if I didn't want to. And he was um, there letting me make my own mistakes and, 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 and all of those things. So I'm very appreciative of, of him and his guidance and, and support. That's lovely to hear. This has literally been bugging me probably since the repercharge. The sunglasses in the boat. <laughs> Did Harry not get the memo that we're going hot pink this time around? <laughs> Yeah, right. Well, um, I mean, you've set a trend off like the really big, bright yeah, sunglasses. Oh, one moment. Um. <laughs> oh, brilliant. For all of our listeners, I, I have a, a feeling that Jack is about to model the hot pink sunglasses uh, live on Broken Oars. Oh, yeah, here we go. And indeed, he is. They are fantastic. Um, okay, so there's a bit of a story to these. So these were the team edition. And sunglasses for the Rio Olympics. Every team GB had these. And um, so me and Angus had a pair. And when we got into when we got into the double, when we got into the double in 2018, we thought it'd be quite fun just racing these all the time. Because they are just well, they're just ridiculous, right? Garish. No, they're yeah. absolutely brilliant. But um so there was no real reason for it, but people interviewing us would always be like, oh, what's the meaning behind these sunglasses? There was none. They just look funny, right? So we wore them. And then what happened was we were, we noticed that commentators were starting to say more and more about them. So we were like, okay, we'll keep wearing them. And then at the World Championships in Plovdiv, they, they have very, um, these can come off very easily, these arms. Right. And we were, uh, and the angle on these can, on the arms can change. And I was adjusting them in the boat and this one fell off and fell into the lake <laughs> between, between the semi-final and the final. I was like, well, that's a nightmare because, you know, I'm not going to race on anything else. <laughs> so I wrote to Adidas while we were at the World Championships and they they very kindly sent another a replacement arm to the team hotel. And um, this, what I didn't realise was they'd also sent two pairs of sunglasses to the GB Rowing Team Training Centre, these exact ones. But we didn't, and um, I think someone did mention it, but we, we forgot. And th- when we got into the quad this year, the coach found the two new pairs and said, well, these are for you, Harry and Tom. And when we were training, we'd wear them. But Harry, I think he liked, I think he liked his normal sunglasses, all the ones he normally wears. And maybe he was too embarrassed because he, he maybe maybe he didn't realise, maybe he didn't feel, maybe got a bit of imposter syndrome or something or didn't feel cool enough to be wearing these sunglasses. And I understand like, that you have to be really cool to be wearing red. Um, <laughs> uh, but maybe he, he didn't feel 
feel up to it. <laughs> Fair so he 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 just went for his uh, his regular run of the mill lime green sunglasses. Yeah, the li- the the lime green one slipped by unnoticed in the in the hot pink that was being modelled by certain other members of, of the boat. Are you, are you, are, do you think it's it's led to a bit of a trend? Because I have seen, I have well, yeah, I am I'm responsible for my own absolutely shockingly oversized and stupidly coloured yeah. sunglasses. Uh, well, I, I I tell you one person who definitely I think caught on from the trend. So the stroke man of the Chinese double. I don't remember his name, but absolute massive guy who stroke the one that whose knees bend again after he finishes stroke. I'm sure you've noticed like it's like he, he, he does a little double. That, that guy. Yeah. Um, so the year after when me and Angus were no longer racing the double, we'd gone back into a quad. Um we watched we, we turned on TV to watch a World Cup that we weren't racing at. And this Chinese guy in the stroke seat of their double, the, the, the year after, you know, the next world rowing event after we've been racing in them, he's there wearing the exact same orange sunglasses. We're like, hang on a minute. <laughs> like, is this, maybe this is catching on a little bit. Oh, in, a, in an ideal world, maybe um, there'd be a compulsory part of a world rowing uniform and everyone would have them. I think so. I, I, and I think that Adidas should be giving you huge amounts of sponsorship money for starting a global trend that will obviously, you know, sweep, sweep not just this nation, but every other one or, or, over the, the, the next season or, or two. To, to turn slightly serious for a second or two, and it's very difficult with us, with us, Jack, you know that, that we, we have a tendency to reset to our default mode of being quite flippant. You got a silver medal in the quad, which is massive. It's a huge, it's a huge achievement. It, it, it's, and obviously we're fairly used to in Britain doing reasonably well at the Olympics. Yeah. And a lot, a lot of the fallout was how badly we, we'd done and you, your achievement, and I, I'm talking about every, everyone in the quad and your support team and your coaches, it, it kind of got lost in the, Oh my, Oh my word, this is terrible. This is the end of British rowing. Did you, I don't think you're, you're the sort of, you're the sort of person to go, but what about us? Look how wonderful we are. But there must be a sense of we've achieved something pretty special here and and maybe as a team we're not where we usually are but it's not all doom and gloom yeah I, okay for us like the the press that followed the other races what it didn't really get us down in that way because it didn't take away from what we had achieved and what we'd achieved we did it for us right we it's very noble to say that you want to win for the country or you want to win for anything else we want to win for ourselves, mm. but it's also really cool to do it for the country and that other people care. Like, that's really, really nice. Um, and, and it's even better if it inspires other people to get into sport or to enjoy it or to stay in the sport, whatever, those things. It was disappointing. And I felt so much for all of our teammates who didn't come away in the positions they wanted to, especially all the people that finished fourth. Like the, I think it was six boats. We got six fourths, tough. yeah. Yeah, it was tough to see that. And three of them happened on the same day that we raced our final. So we knew that the double had come forth before we boated. Um, and of course, like you can't focus on that because you've got to go and race, but those are two of the guys we train with every day and we're really disappointed for them. And then while we were on the water, both the fourth races happened and we didn't know how they'd done until um, probably after our medal ceremonies. And then it was like, okay, this is, this is pretty gusting. Like we were convinced that the four would win a medal. Um, and then when it, then the next day at the airport, we watched 
the women's pair and lightweight women's double finished fourth and the lightweight women it was just like the most outstanding race and um what's a hundredth of a second i wonder what the distances of that must be you know, centimeters yeah, um, I mean, it's half a barrel, basically, isn't it? Yeah, that's it's so tight. That much. Again, really, really tough and unlucky in that. Um, and then Vicky coming forth when I was back at home watching with a few beers um, was an amazing race. And I'm sure she'd have been really disappointed to finish fourth. But she said it in her interview, and we were said we all said it when we were watching. She was rowing like an absolute champion and in an amazingly tough event really still did very well and one of uh, was it i think probably the best ever women's yeah single result. i'm not sure if it was or not i can't I'm, don't quote me on that but, but definitely very good anyway um i think we've been used to fantastic results and i think we want them back as a team uh and i'm not speaking as the member of the, uh, as on behalf of the team or anything when i say this but i think it's maybe we we need to understand as British supporters and British rowers and the British rowing community that the rest of the world has moved on. Our team was strong, actually, and really fast. And um, if we compare to previous data, was physically very strong and very fast. Um, but the, there are more countries winning medals now than there were before and the races have more crews close to the top than there were before and that's not saying that it wasn't tough before of course it was but now there's a lot more you know you have to be exactly right on the day a slightly bad day goes from being first to fourth very quickly yeah um, and okay as a team we need to be looking at what we do that can put us ahead of that again and what's going to put us half length up on that um but i think we it's almost i wouldn't say i wouldn't go as far as to say arrogant but we shouldn't be expecting gold medals all the time they, they don't come easily and it is arrogant to suggest that we deserve them just because we're great britain and that everyone else across the world who's working really hard for them for some reason shouldn't because we should you know we have to earn them and we have to work out what we're going to do that that gets them um so yeah, there was a lot of press and a, a lot of it's about how much funding goes into rowing and you know, we didn't get the return in terms of medals that we want. And that is a shame. Um, but I'm sure that for all the athletes that didn't come away with what they wanted, they're going to be doubly as tough on themselves this next three years to try and turn around. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We, we, we talked about it and I think Loon would probably agree. A lot of the comments were, we let Jürgen go. Um, COVID, it was the games were a year delayed, all of the rest of it. And we put it down to a lot of different factors. Uh, you know, obviously Jurgen going, um, the the internal stuff that 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 that, that happened there happened. Um, but also a lot of very senior members left after after Rio. And a lot of people who have won multiple medals for Great Britain, when they first went to an Olympics, they didn't necessarily win, but they gained valuable experience. And this when we looked at it, we did like a pre-Olympics episode and it was a very, very young, relatively inexperienced squad. I mean, a very strong squad, but there, there, there were so many factors that go on 
and there's so many there's so many things that that went into our great run of success and and we've been on the we've been on the the good end of very very fine margins before you know whether it was it, it, it was the four in Athens which is basically a couple of beer cans you know that they beat the Canadians by or or whatever and we still made you know sixth fourth places uh, multiple finals in a host of categories against um, nations who've all poured massive resources into their rowing programs. The, not the vitriol, but the outpouring, almost like this was an insult to British pride, was very, and some of it coming from ex-rowers, it was quite hard, hard to, to understand where they were coming from when you actually looked at the factors that went into what was a very special um, Olympics. Yeah, exactly. I think um, it's, it's tough, that, very tough for the people that, didn't do as well as they wanted and then saw all of that. But then I understand that, you know, we are accountable to people who pay, well, we're accountable to people that play the lottery and, and the UK sport and the people who support us. And there is an element of results that we are expected to get, but it is sport. It doesn't run in straight lines. And unfortunately, things don't always go to plan. Now, if I look, you look back to the London Olympics and swimming, they really underperformed and it was huge in the press. And then, uh, well, for this Olympics, they, the swimming team was brilliant and won so many medals. And hopefully this can be a catalyst to kind of bring us back up to the top. But what I hope with British rowing, and um, I'm saddened to see that Brendan's left or gone. Um, I hoped that after the Olympics, it would not be that people, there would be no knee-jerk reactions because the results weren't what we expected or what we hoped for. But they if okay if you were to put it in the analogy of a 2k ergo test you're aiming for a pb and you become you come a second off it or half a second even you wouldn't completely change your approach of how you'd go and do a 2k you'd tweak it because you're close you weren't miles away but you you didn't get what you wanted but you're you're close and i'm concerned and hope that very much that they don't try and throw what almost worked because it did almost work had those six third place, six fourth places been third places we'd have been laughing our way on a flight home from tokyo like wow what an amazing olympics instead it was it was disappointing um and i think it would be foolish to completely throw everything out the window of how how we've been building the team over the last few years it's been it's been working actually really well and if you look to april this year i think we were the only boat I think Alcord was the only boat that didn't win a medal at the European Championships. So it became like, I'm sure those same people that have been um, criticising the team and the management since the Olympics were also the ones being like, wow, they're absolutely crushing it back in April. So you know, it's up and down. It's, it's a process. And for most of the athletes in the team, it was their first Olympics. If you think of some athletes who have won gold. So, you know, that, like Hodgie, he's won three gold medals. Yeah. But he did, you know, his first Olympics was a tough learning experience. And Alan Campbell, he won a fantastic bronze medal in, in um, London. But in Athens, I think he finished, I think they finished last in the quad. Yeah. And like, that's not saying that those performances were bad, but, you know, they learned from those things and, and did outstanding things afterwards. And hopefully, you know, for our, our team members who didn't do what they wanted or didn't get where they wanted to be, they, they, they've learned from the experience of the games and the enormity of it because it is different yeah. uh, and, and turn up in, in Paris ready to, ready to go and win some stuff. 
yeah, let's not um, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's look at the at the you know let's protect the athletes because they're the ones at the sharp end, and let's and let's let's not have a knee jerk period of bloodletting, even though it, it feels somewhat like that's going on a, a little bit. Are you? Um, have you made a decision as to your future? Are you now walking away into the sunset to start your your tour of of the rivers of the UK? Or are you are you going back for another stab at it, Jack? I definitely want to get the tour of the UK underway. I definitely do. And um, so I'm in I'm in Sweden right now, actually. So my girlfriend's Swedish. I've been um, spending some time here, and I'm back in the UK on Friday night. So people listening, I'm not sure when this is going to come out. That's the fifteenth of fifteenth of October. I'll be back. And I'll be in the UK for the foreseeable future, available for any um, any tours, any places to go. <laughs> I've, I've not I've not said 100% yes yet. I would love I would love to continue, but also I'm, I think it'd be foolish to to just sleepwalk into just yes because that's what I've always known. I want to yeah. um, I want to make sure I'm doing it for the right reasons, and that if I'm going back, I have the real fire in my belly to okay. to go back because. The training's hard. There's some very hard sessions you have to do, and you, you can't do them half-heartedly. So um, we'll see. Okay. We'll, we'll see about that. Um, but whatever happens, there's no way. There's no way I will not be part of the sport because I love it. Yeah. Well, I, I know we last time um, we were talking. I've I've done the length of the Thames, and you were saying it was something you'd like to do. I, I would say don't do it when you come back because we're heading into into November. I, I waited until the end of July. You know, pick, yeah, November, pick, November might be good because if if it's been raining a bit, it would be a bit quicker. You've still got to go through the locks, Jack. They don't open them for you. And in a single, actually, um, that's that's going to be an interesting proposition uh, if the lock keepers have, have knocked have knocked off. So there's there's the there's the length of the Thames, which I know that you want to do. Andy Hodge has said if you fancy doing Durham Regatta next year, he will turn out and and sit in a boat with all four of us, and we'll be old fogies together. Although you're 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 all more meddled old fogies than I am, and 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 Lewin is. I think that's very sensible because you've just had it. You've just come off a massive high. It would be very easy to go. Yes, let's let's go and do it again. But you're actually taking a little bit of a break from it, which probably feeds into. Is that why you went for the coastal? Yeah, well, that's, that's part of it. I'm. I wanted to do some things where I'm rowing for fun, right? And um, okay, racing it. So we raced at Henley two weeks after the Olympics, and that was kind of because it's fun because we love racing at Henley. I love rowing for Leander. Um, I it's my hometown and or home area and I, I don't think I would well the club asked if we'd do it because they, they wanted anyone coming back to the Olympics to race if we could and I was like well I, I wrote to all the athletes and was like Juan who wants to come and race and a very small number said yes <laughs> so, okay so that was great fun absolutely loved it had a pretty good race for the, an Irish crew pretty hard race against an Irish crew I, I was so glad you, that you won that <laughs> I, I, I was just I, I was like oh my god the, the only people who who aren't from sort of Thames Leander Oxbrooks or kind of like Cambridge are in the finals are the Irish and I was just like thinking, they can't possibly beat us can't <laughs> let that happen I, I, I was really worried because just like they're doing so well it was um, who's the guy in, in the stroke of that boat he, Gary O'Donovan yeah he, he's the, and I mean, he's a flipping excellent rower himself. 
yeah, it, oh, he's great. Yeah. Oh, he's a he's a silver medalist from um, from from uh, Rio. But then, but the thing is, we I'd raced him in a final at Henley before in the doubles, and um, and I think he won his comeback with a vengeance. So I was very yeah very happy to cross the line. I'd say that race was a bit more relief than than okay. the other race. And then yeah, the coastal championships was an opportunity just to do the sport in a different way. Um, you know, we've, we always hear this stuff about coastal and about how it might become an Olympic sport and how it's like a cool version of rowing and stuff. And, and we had this opportunity, someone, one of the guys at University of London, at Tyrion, I got in contact and asked if I wanted to do it. And I didn't really row for University of London much when I was a student. I did, I did one weekend racing at Bucks and that's about it because I was, I was in the team by then and the British team by then. So when I had this opportunity to race for Tyrion, I thought, well, that's really fun. And at the Coastal Championships, that's even more fun. And with my housemate, James Fox from the Power Four and Matt Rossiter from the, from the Olympic Four, that is going to be just hilarious, just a really fun trip. They're not scholars, but they're good athletes. <laughs> Let's just go and see what this is all about. And it, you know what? We, I'm glad we got there a couple of days before we raced because it was a baptism of fire. Like, it's not just... If, we didn't do the beach sprints, so we did the offshore race, which is you race four kilometres around this kind of circuit with boys, and then the final six kilometres. But it, depending on weather, you can either do like a sailing start where, you, where there's a start line and you just go from there, or you do a beach start. And the beach start, oh my goodness, it's like <laughs> you have 20 boats in a line. Now these boats are much wider, like they're probably about a meter, a meter wide, a bit wider than the middle of an eight, um, the whole way across. And there's 20 of them across on the beach. Is this like a James Bond meets triathlon race for your boat? You've got to sort of get it out before everyone else? Kind of. So it's like the wacky races, basically. So, you, <laughs> so the way the start goes is that you, you, you all stand. Firstly, you have your boats on the beach. And then this announcer says like, take your boats to the water. So you, you all pick it up and walk along into the, to, into the sea. And then your bow person gets in. And then the other three of you and Cox wait until a beep. And then at that beep, and you have to have both feet on the floor before this beep, right? Otherwise it's a full start. And um, when this beep happens, you basically have to jump in the boat, try and sort of get these shoes on and get rowing as quick as possible. And then the, the Cox has to put a rudder in because you can't have a rudder yeah. on the beach. Um, they have to put a rudder in. So before that, you're kind of going all over the shop and there's 20 boats, just carnage. And it's an absolute sprint to try and get to the first turning point first. Yep. Uh, now we, so it was a real baptism of fire trying to like learn the, learn the boat, learn the skills of getting in and out of it. Because when you finish the race, you then basically beach the boat and the bow person has to jump out and run to the finish line which is about 50 meters up the beach. Um, absolute insanity. Now the, <laughs> the racing, I, I don't know if you watched any of it or if you saw any of the coverage of the world Rowing coastal championships, but like, it was just insane. Like I knew it'd be kind of carnage because when we went out practicing, it was quite rough. And there was sometimes with these huge like dumping waves and we've, we've sort of, I'd be taking a stroke and then just slam down and feel like we've dropped about three meters and just crashing through the place, getting chucked about. Rowing didn't feel like rowing. There was no, 
sort of boat feel that are just putting your blades in, pushing as hard as you can, try and get them out again and do the same thing again. And it was, and, and whilst basically getting seasick at the same time, but the first <laughs> kilometer of the race in our heat and in our final, we were like, okay, we will just sprint as hard as we can to get to the boy first. But I think our lack of sea skill, I suppose, um, came, <laughs> showed up when on both races, we, we got into a massive crash around the first boy. And that, that's the thing with this coastal rowing is it's, you don't have six lanes where you all just stay apart. You don't even have two sides of a river or any of this or an umpire telling you where to go. You just go and these boats are quite big and sturdy and you just crash into each other and there's no one seems to really care. You just crash into each other. You're trying to take strokes with your blade inside someone else's boat. Like all this just <laughs> absolute carnage, like pushing people's blades away, make, like taking your hand off your own so you can protect your face. <laughs> just all sorts going on. And then you get, you sort of make it around this first boy somehow and then start sprinting again to try and get to the next one. It was just, there was just so much going on. There was so much going on, but I, I really enjoyed it actually. And, you know, we, we made it through to the final and to be honest, we thought we'd probably realistically come about 10th. That's what we thought would be a quite good result. And then, we got to the first boy in second, had the most massive crash and then came through the after the first boy in about, I don't know, 15. And then we just spent the next two kilometers just somehow just rowing through people and rowing through people. And I was like, this is quite good. And then, yeah, we, we, we got to the end in third place. And as we finished the race, we beached ourselves onto the, you know, into the beach. And um, our bow man tried to jump out of the boat. His blade sw- swung around, smacked him in the face. Chip, cut one of his well smashed one of his teeth in half as he then ran ran up to the finish line so it was eventful it, it wasn't on the last 50 meter sprint that it was just decided I mean it, he didn't have to like do his best Usain Bolt impression or anything he, he didn't have to fortunately we'd done a we'd done a good enough job you, but you, there were I did see many races with that where people two boats would get onto the beach at the same time and you know you've been racing for 25 minutes by now you're pretty knackered and people were like, it was like, um, what's that movie? Saving Private Ryan, like coming, <laughs> coming up the beach, some of these people just um, broken. So it was, it was exciting. It was really exciting. And I think, yeah, I, I think it was actually quite a good event. I liked it. I, I was kind of skeptical of co- coastal rowing before, and I, but I really enjoyed it. And I think it helps. Like I, I said on Twitter um, something about how it was, what the most fun world rowing event I've been to and uh, Rebecca and she said oh um why were the other ones not fun it's a shame they weren't fun and that's not why I said I said it was the most fun one it doesn't mean that the other ones weren't fun the others were really fun but this this had an extra special thing about it and, and I guess what those are and they're all things that I love about rowing one the community it's not it's not an event where or in the offshore one which I did it's not you're not rowing for your country necessarily you're rowing for clubs and your country approves your entry so there's people from all sorts of places um there's people it's a whole different rowing community of people who i've never come across before some of them have never rowed on the river or a lake they call us they don't call us rowers they call us flat water rowers or river rowers right so they're rowers and we're river rowers um i feel i feel somewhat small now like i've, I've been put very firmly in my place 
like it. Yeah, no, and, you're a flat water rower. It doesn't it doesn't count. Yeah, you, you try going to a coastal event for the first time, and they literally, you know, they're they're really close. Like, right, this is an oar, okay? Yeah, this is the bit you hold. So I've got the North Sea on my doorstep. I'm never going coastal rowing. It's got like polar bears and and leopard seals and killer whales <laughs> in it where I where I live. <laughs> But what else was brilliant at the event and with the community was that what, with the boats, we not everyone has their own boat. In fact, hardly anyone does. You share them. So you, you, we, we were sharing our boat with a women's quad and everyone just uses the same equipment. There's no, there's no different weight classes of the boats. It's, there's, there's just a single, a double, a quad. Um, and these boats are huge, right? So a normal quad, an international quad is 52 kilograms. These quads are 140 kilograms. So carrying them around, you have to help each other. So you and your quad, it's pretty tough to carry a boat around. So you'll start helping people who you wouldn't know, your opposing teams, you know, anyone. They're helping each other out. And and I love that about the sport. I thought it was a really just much nicer feel. And I, I think if it became Olympic, it would probably lose that a bit and you'd have support staff helping you carry your boats and things like that. But I did I really enjoyed that. It was the race happened and people wanted to win, but immediately after it finished, people were helping each other carry their boats back and these sort of things. And I thought that was great. The other reasons it was fun, well, one, we weren't under any performance pressure. We were racing, we were doing it for fun, right? It was, we were there having it, like having a beer at night and these kind of things. It wasn't, we weren't there racing at a World Cup or World Championships where you're expected to act a certain way. Um, and it does help to be, to be able to finish a race and then just chill in like a pair of shorts by the beach and go for a swim and these kind of things. It was, it was kind of like, well, it was like a rowing holiday, I suppose, for for us. But that doesn't, I don't mean to belittle the event by that because for some people that's the, that's the biggest race of the year. Um, but it was, I, I really enjoyed it. And I think it, I, I will go back and do, I definitely plan to go back and do more coastal rowing. Yeah, I don't think you're belittling it, Jack. I think what's coming across is that you found it very refreshing. Everybody mucked in. There was a sense of community and helping each other out. It was it was interesting racing. Um, I mean, Agecroft at Henley this year did try and board uh, another crew within 20 strokes of the start and were, were rightly disqualified for an act of piracy. Whereas it sounds like in coastal rowing, smashing into a boat isn't, isn't, isn't necessarily frowned upon. It's positively encouraged. Well, exactly that. And, I, and the other thing, I did really like how the just the sharing of equipment between teams. I just think that was so nice. It was so simple. It's not, you know, you don't, there was no, no one being precious about the, this is um, my set of blades or this is because yeah. you're sharing, or this is my seat that has to be at this height. Or we all had those shoes. I don't know if you've ever used them. They kind of look like Crocs that can change yeah. size. We, yeah. we all had those ones in the boat. Um, and it was just very simple, very simple. And I think the reason what made me think that that coastal rowing could be appropriate for the Olympics in future, and I don't mean instead of the Olympics, but I mean as part of rowing, is that it is more accessible in that people, it, the boat manufacturers could just transport the boats there and everybody uses the same ones. It's yeah. people aren't there to ship boats from all around the world and this kind of stuff or, or even buy their own. And I think that was quite, um, well, sustainable actually and, and then also a sea is just there rather than having to build a lake and those yeah. things so i think okay the future of the sport could be that 
if if it wants to stay in the Olympics and if it was threatened, that if there was not a place to do 2000 meter rowing, maybe they could do coastal instead or for that Olympics. I'm not sure, but um, it was, it was definitely interesting. It was, and it was really, really fun. Do you, do you think there's, I mean, uh, stuff that river rowing can take from that kind of coastal attitude to things? I think the piracy thing is definitely one we should be taking forward. Yes. I need a new single. That ailings isn't going to last forever. <laughs> I think one thing, one thing that could stay is, is actually the, um, how the officials work. So like, I, I hugely respect people that spend their time training to become an umpire and, and being one. And the time they volunteer to make events around the country will happen is just, you know, it, it's amazing. And it's, they, I've had so many different umpires umpire me since I was 10 years old at Maidenhead and, you know, some of them would help me steer around a bendy course at Open Regatta, or some of them would you know, help me once I've crashed into a tree to back it down, and or some of them would disqualify me when I crash at, at Ross Regatta, or you know these different things. But they, um, what was refreshing at the um, at this regatta was that they weren't wearing suits, they weren't wearing ties, they were wearing an open neck shirt and, and a pair of shorts, and it, I think that makes them seem a bit more approachable and a bit more relatable. And I think for, for river regattas, that might actually be quite nice um, to, to just be a little bit more, more relaxed with that. I, I would go with that a lot. When you think about the traditional image of the umpire in river rowing, it's quite a stern and formidable presence, really. It's, it, you get the feeling that this is not someone you should really mess with. Yeah. As it, opposed to someone who's there to help out um, and make the event work well. I I tried a little bit of coastal just off the Kent coast uh, with Deal yeah. um, over the summer. And yeah, carnage. It wasn't as intense because there were only four boats in our race. And it was a slightly lower standard. This was like... <laughs> Home Bay Junior Senior, not not the World Coastal Championships. It was, I mean, it reminded me a lot of learning to row, being a novice rower in a, that that was the big thing, is that kind of like crash bang wallop, you know, don't slow down. It doesn't matter where you are in the race, whatever you do, don't slow down. Even if you laugh, someone might catch crap. There's, and then there's just this thing of the boys that you just go round them. I, I was lucky enough to be, you know, I'm a stroke sider, so I was on stroke side, and they said, yeah, on the turn, just keep rowing, just keep rowing, just don't <laughs> stop, whatever happens, just keep going, and, you know, bow side's got the, I mean, they call it stroke side, because everything's back to front in coastal boats, but they've got the tricky job of, like, anchoring it around the boy, but it is just, you don't know what's going to happen next. Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, that does take me back to being a novice rower. I didn't know what was going to happen next. There's just like this constant fear after about the first, you know, if I survived the start, I got to 500 metres and then I thought, oh my God, I'm getting tired. Please don't crap. Please don't crap. Please don't crap. Um, and sometimes I didn't. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I do think it is something that everybody should try. And that I, and just that assumption that you can go to another club and borrow their boat is a really good one. Yeah, it was, it was, it was really great. 
this is the second time we've chatted on the podcast, Jack, and we've, we've obviously had some back and forth kind of a, in, in, in DMs and messages and that kind of thing. And what's always come across from you is, is firstly that rowing has to be fun. The actual, the, the, the journey of rowing has to be fun. You're very community orientated, whether that's your connections with Maidenhead or with your, your crew in the Olympics or the sense of community that you got from the world coastals. And you just seem like someone who really enjoys being out on the water. And Loon and I were, were, were chatting recently just among ourselves. You know, since Rio, we've seen a decline in, in um, rowing in this, in this country in terms of participation numbers. But all of the things that you're advocating are all of the things that, that we look for in sport. And, and I'm not talking about exercise for aesthetic reasons, but sport as a means of keeping fit, of, 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 of connecting with people, of building communities, of learning new skills like coastal rowing when you've been a river rower. Are these all things that we should be taking forward as a sport in this country? Because we are, we are seeing a bit, we are seeing a, a, a decline. I know people like Andy Hodge and London Youth Rowing are doing great work with, with, with younger people. And there's a lot of beacon clubs around the country who, who are getting more, more young people into the sport because we, we are so performance-based because of our success in the Olympics. Um, a lot of clubs, you know, the Agecrofts or the Oxbrooks of this world have turned into HP centres, essentially. Do we need yeah. to be emphasizing the fun, the community, the, the getting out, the getting amongst it, the getting together stuff more? Yeah, I, absolutely. I think, I understand that clubs want to win races and they want to be represented at Henley or try and win at Henley. I, I totally get it because it's really prestigious and, in in our country and our sport is put on a pedestal to do those things but it's a shame I think it's a huge shame when clubs turn people away because they won't commit to six training sessions a week or this kind of stuff if they want to come and enjoy rowing let them come and enjoy rowing and um, okay I, I understand that some clubs they, they want to be a high performance centre and, and that's what they're going to do and fine but then other clubs who aren't quite at that level, I think it's important to just have people who want to come and row because ultimately people, you, you, you want to come and win races or some people want to go and win races. Some people want to just go and do races. Some people don't want to race at all. They just want to go rowing. Some people want to do it for fitness. Some people want to do it just for the community. Some people like being out on the river. Some people like all of those things. I think, um, I think it's a big shame when, when, people have put off the sport because they think it's has to be hard or when it, or it has to be a sacri you have to be making sacrifices or it has to be, um, it has to be miserable or you have to be putting yourself in pain all the time. Uh, the, the, people will do the sport for all sorts of reasons. And I think we need to be careful with clubs and, and, and I've seen it in, in my, in Maidenhead definitely when I was younger was that people were getting turned away, juniors getting turned away because they didn't seem tall enough. And stuff and it's like that's that's not that's not what rowing's all about yes you want tall people if you want to win races but you also want people who are going to be a good team player or people who are going to uh, maybe be very technically good or or help other people to enjoy it so that they do really well or this sort of thing the other thing i think maidenhead now does fantastically that other clubs could do is um is make sure that in the evenings if if you have a bar at your rowing club it's open and even if there's no one staff it, if it's self-staffed or done off like um honestly, really, 
that sort of thing that just keeps the social side of, of people growing. So people are not just turning up, doing a really miserable, hard training session and then going home. Instead, they're turning up, maybe doing a, their session and then staying for a drink to chat with other like-minded or similar people. I think that's the sort of thing that I think could keep people in the sport longer. Mm. Um, because the thing with growing is with our membership is like it's not just declining; it's the turnover. It's like people do come. Lots of people start the sport; they don't stay in the sport. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that it's. I think that as British rowing, we could do a much better job of um, promoting rowing as a sport for life. You know, as a sport for life, and and something that you want to do throughout your life, rather than something you want to just try and maybe try and be good at or try and have this one target that you want to hit and then stop. Mm. Um, and, and yeah, I think going hard, we are a victim of our own success in that people want to try rowing because they want to win stuff. And um, I've always tried, I do try very much, especially when I've been interviewed after races and stuff to, to try and show how much fun I've been having because um, I think a lot of the narrative that comes out of our team is how hard it's been, how much sacrifice there is, how horrible the training is. That's maybe not the best shot window if we want people to come <laughs> and try our sport. It's like, <laughs> come here and suffer. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I do think, yeah, sort of like emphasizing, you could be in something that feels like it's flying down a river is, is probably a better, better bet. Yeah, exactly. I think, um, but I think as rowers, as rowers, we all have a responsibility to that, to try and, like, I, I think we should all be doing better to try and encourage our friends to come and try and pick it up and, and things like that. Because if someone's joining a club where their friends already are, like, I, I think if every, I don't know, every third British rowing member managed to find a friend to join their club, think how healthy our sport would be there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that people won't just stumble across the sport. And I think that that's, how many of us got into it in the first place was either from family or friends or from schools or from, okay, maybe just saw a local club and thought I'll try this or at university at Freshers Fair or something. But when your friend suggests you try something, often you go and have a really fun time doing it. Now I know rowing's a bit different because you can't just, you know, you have to go through this little level of splashing around and falling in and being in a tub boat and, and getting blisters and these things. And it's, you can't, it's not like riding a bike, you just get on and go. But I think um, yeah, that I think that'd be a nice idea if more people tried to yeah bring bring a mate bring a mate to your own club. Yeah. Thing. Bring a friend and and emphasize emphasize the you know if we can as a sport emphasize the participation as much as the performance because we have really emphasized how well we perform, um, but we are a participation sport and, and clubs are. You know, the club is not the fleet. It's not. It's not the the buildings. It's not the amount of tin fishes that you've got. You know, as as Hinksy proved in this Henley. You know, getting to the Sunday in a in a on little more than a borrowed boat and intent and 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 a collective desire to to be a club. Clubs are the people who are in them. So so throw your doors open. Let people in. Show them around. Teach them. Get them on the tank. Take them out in a tub. Put them on an erg. Go and have a coffee with them, have a chat with them. And, and just, you know, we we know what rowing can be like. And we've all had those magical outings or those magical sessions or those magical racing races where it just clicks and there's no better feeling, you know. So why wouldn't you want other people to feel that? 
Exactly that. And and what Hodgie's doing is great. And what London Youth Rowing is doing is is fantastic. And getting rowing to people from disadvantaged backgrounds and, and play people who'd otherwise never find the sport and it can and, and Fulham Reach and places like that. They're, they're turning people's lives around through the sport. And that's brilliant. But what I think we need to find more of is I, I think jun- our junior membership is is pretty healthy. And, and there's lots of young people rowing. If you go to any event, there's a lot of junior people racing. I think it's people sort of after university age or people starting careers or people starting families who who fall out of the sport and often never come back. And they're the people who then become the coaches who help at these junior clubs or the people that become umpires or the people who are sitting in the bar at a rowing club in years to come um, that, that we're losing. And so I think we could... Be, and, and I think part of that, like I said before, is the pressure of being expected to come in five, six days a week or seven days a week or twice a day or whatever when you're trying to start your career or you're thinking of starting family. It's not, you, know, you can't do all those things at the same time, but you might still want to come rowing. Yeah. Yeah. You might, you know, Henley might have to take a back seat while you get your career going and you're looking after a baby and you're doing the school run, but you can still go out on the water when you get, you know, a slot on a, on a, Saturday morning or a Sunday morning or a, a nice night during the summer. Yeah, I, I, I think that's that's got to be the, the takeaway from from this bit of the conversation. Bring a mate. If everyone thought to bring a mate down to their rowing club and, okay, I'm going to push a little bit here. All of you get, every rower get themselves a British rowing racing licence, even if they're not going to race um, because that is where the money will come to for British rowing to be able to help in, in the sort of community things that they want to do. Mm. Um, anything involving increasing participation in, like, for example, people from disadvantaged backgrounds or um, helping to make a better um, competition structure, these sort of things, they don't, it don't, none of it happens for free. And I think um, part of our dwindling participation numbers is not necessarily people not participating, it's people not, not being members anymore. Mm. Um, and okay I think it's British Rowing's job to give more reasons to be a member than just than just a racing license but uh, but I think as people I suppose every rower is a custodian of the sport in a way and um, maybe it's our responsibility to to pay our memberships and and um, and give something back to it as well so bring a mate pay your membership subs and don't wait for British Rowing to do it take ownership of it yourself Honestly, I think Lewin would agree. It's been wonderful to see you again. I know you had other things on your mind over the summer, but we were watching and going, come on, you can do it. It honestly couldn't have happened to a nicer person. And um, we're so proud of you all in the quad and what you achieved. And thanks so much for coming on. It's been lovely to talk to you again. Thank you so much for having me and uh, putting up with me. It's been a pleasure. No, honestly. Um, And, but yeah, Harry should get himself some pink sunglasses.